0: Uh, David is the author of For Cricket Know, which was a marvellous account of Hutton's tour to the West Indies in the 1950s and won, um, among other things, the Cricket Society's Book of the Year Award, um, which we uh, grant in cooperation with MCC, the uh, Cricket Society, the ones who uh, instigated that award. And uh, David is here to talk to Clem, so I'll hand over to him. Thank you very much, Jeff. Um, it's a real pleasure and privilege to have been asked by Jeff um, to host this celebration of the work of Clem Seacher, an Emeritus professor of history at London Metropolitan University. And as Jeff says, the immediate reason uh, for this afternoon of celebration is that Clem is the 2023 winner of the prestigious Howard Milton Award for Cricket Scholarship, given jointly by the BSSH and the Cricket Society for his contribution. To the history of cricket and the history of the Caribbean. Um, but this is by no means the first honor that has been conferred upon Clem. In 2003, he was awarded a certificate of distinction by the Guyana High Commission. He's received honorary degrees. He's given many keynote <coughs> speeches, such as the Tim Hector, Walter Rodney, and Frank Worrell Memorial Lectures. And those attending the talk in person will see on the handout, uh, I prepared just to give a flavor of his <coughs> body of work, that his books have won two very important literary prizes. Now, I know I've been greatly influenced by Clem's writing, and there are several people in the audience today who would say the same. Simon Listers here, the author of the seminal Fire in Babylon, and he describes Clem as the finest interpreter of West Indies cricket writing today. Two former England captains, Mike Brearley and Mike Atherton, have hailed his ongoing history of cricket in Guyana as superb and unique. There's a great breadth, depth and humanity to what Clem has done. To use a Guyanese word, uh, it's a cook-up of the library and the run shop, the classroom and the cricket pavilion. And what better time to discuss history and cricket with a man from Babis just after a man from Babis has so rejuvenated West Indian cricket. So could I ask you, and uh, maybe we could start there, Clem, because... I know distance is a relative... Now, before, oh, sorry, go before you start, David, um,
1: let me say that I would like to thank the cricket um, society and the British Society of Sports History for giving me this prestigious award um, because, as you know, those books, people had to rely on those books to earn me a living. I end up in a poor house. So... These little awards, when they come, that's as much as I'm going to get. <laughs> so I'm very grateful for this, and it's a tremendous honor.
0: Thank you. Yes. Um, I was just going to start actually um, by asking you. I know um, distance is a relative thing when you get to the interior of Ghana, but um, Shaman Joseph is, you know, from your region. Can you talk a bit yes, about? Yes.
1: Um, well, I didn't know about this man until he, until he played in the in the test match. I knew nothing of him at all. I'm not sure how many people in Guyana knew about him. But he comes from a place called Barakara. Barakara is like Timbuktu. It's in the country of Barbies, but it's up what they call the Kanji Creek. The Kanji Creek is at its mouth is about say, the size of the Thames. So it's not big by Guyanese standards. So they call it a creek. And he lives about, his village is 50-odd miles up this creek. So it was totally isolated. I said it made the best bush rum in the country, illegal rum, because you had no policeman anywhere within that place, at least 20 miles the nearest police station. But um, it's quite an extraordinary thing for a man to come from a place like that, which had really no cricket team and learned his cricket in the kind of seminal way a lot of kids in the West Indies learned their cricket. Um, But he was very fortunate that he was able to move uh, initially to New Amsterdam, which is the main town in Barbies, and that gave him access to the facilities that have been promoted by the Barbies Cricket Board which is one of the most vibrant boards in the whole of the West Indies. And that is why now I, I'm being, not being parochial here, but I'm telling you the truth. There are three guys, there were three guys in this tour of Australia who come from Barbies. And they are a product of the kinds of, of new organizational methods and so on that the people in Barbies, the Barbies Cricket Board, uh, has launched over the last 10 years or so. So it's... Um, he hasn't come out of the blue. He's a product of a system which is there. And unfortunately, in many of the uh, countries of the Caribbean, that sort of framework is not as robust
0: and vibrant as it is in Barbados at this point. Yeah. And we'll come on to the great cricketing tradition there as we go on but I I wanted in the first sort of part of this chat to talk about your formation both sort of environmental and um, intellectual it seems to me there are sort of three parts to that um, formation Um, because although you're from Palmyra there was a sugar plantation just on the outskirts of your village. And of course, you were very familiar from early age with Port Morant, sometimes known as Little Moscow at that time, but right at the heart of the sugar industry. So that sugar monoculture is in your veins, I suppose. Can you talk about that?
1: Oh, yes, yes, David. Um, My village was at the, or is at the the perimeter of a plantation called um, Rose Hall. Um, this village of Palmyra will soon be the metropolis of Palmyra because the road from Brazil will link up, go through there on the way to Crab Island, which will be a, become a deep water port. So that village itself, apart from the developments that are taking place there, will become the main outlet for two states in Brazil, which are totally landlocked, one called Roraima and one called Amazonas. And we are very fortunate that Ruaima is wedged between Venezuela and Guyana. And the Brazilians have moved their troops in there because they want that road to be built. So that bastard there um, (laughs) in Venezuela, he knows how far he can go. He doesn't want to take on... He knows the Americans are not going to do anything. But he doesn't want to take on the Brazilians. So, yes, um, The village, you know, it fed into the plantation. Those links were never um, completely severed. But the village also had a degree of autonomy in that many people had become largely independent um, rice cultivators. And the rice industry really developed during the First World War when rice from India couldn't get into the Caribbean. And therefore, the Guyanese rice, which was a fairly high quality, um, start was able to penetrate that market and retain that market. So many of these villages developed because of that rice industry. But many people also um, were, were, you know, small cattle farmers, cattle herders, uh, market gardening crops, a range of things. You know, Mm. Um, so they were largely self-sufficient. I think that's the point that Tamar Joseph was making the other day, that his village of Barakara was a self-sufficient village. You know, people helped each other um, and they grew all kinds of things. They didn't need to wait for things to come from outside. So Palmyra always had a a degree of autonomy, I would say, and... um, You know, people weren't very rich, but people ate well. Fresh fruits and vegetables, and most of these places were very well planted. Um, So it was a very rich life in in that sense. Of course, cricket was always at the heart of it. I was always a pretty good theoretician of the game, and um, uh, didn't get far beyond that. But I guess I was intimidated by the caliber of these fellas. Many of them got caught up in the rum shop and didn't really develop. Mm -hmm. But the quality, the quality of the cricket was absolutely remarkable. So while these guys didn't get to play for for British Guyana or didn't get to play for the West Indies, many were able to play for the of Barbies or even if they didn't play for the County of Barbies, we had a very vibrant, that's gone, Mm -hmm. we had a very vibrant first division cricket called the Daphson Cup. And the Daphson Cup was the instrument through which people like Basil Butcher and Rohan Kanhai and Joe Solomon and all these guys came to the Mm -hmm. fore. So, there was a degree of, I would say, a degree of economic self-sufficiency, you know, people weren't very poor and they had pride in themselves because they had a certain independence of small farmers. But there was always this curiosity of wanting, wanting to have education. And I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here, the fact that I, in particular, had access to the town of New Amsterdam, meant that we had a very good, this is during the colonial period, <clears throat> a very good, what they used to call public free library. And they always had the word free. So you know, you didn't have to pay. You can just go and borrow the books, right? So you had that and across the road there, you had the British council, the British council office, so I would spend a, a lot of time after school in that library, the British public the, the public free library. Then I would go over to the, um, the British Council Library. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, all kinds of domestic chores were left undone. Mm-hmm. And that's another story when I got home. But um, yes, the thing about the British Council was that it gave us access to many of the English periodicals so i was accustomed to reading that paper thin, what i used to call manchester guardian in those days you know the manchester guardian i i i i would i would read things like the um the the um,
0: new statesman
1: or yeah the statesman? new the, the new statesman and the listener mm. um which was the bbc's weekly uh, magazine so there was that. There was that curiosity all the time, and of course, at the British at the public free library, we'd have these books on cricket, um, because they always make sure they got a copy of a book written by a ghost written or whatever on West Indian cricketers. In fact, that's the place where I first discovered, and uh, uh, the first edition of. Um, CLR James's masterpiece. It wasn't seen as a masterpiece. Then nobody knew about it. But I read the thing. And I'm sorry, I didn't tee it at the time. I'll be rich now. Yeah. And the thing, I I used to smell this thing, you know, the thing was so, yeah, you, before you before you read it, yeah. you got to sample the thing first, right? Yeah. And
0: um, man, it was like a whole new world opening to you, you know? Yeah. We'll come on to James. Could we just mention actually one other um great British institution? I mean, the listener I think was a fantastic yep. magazine, but of course the BBC World Service as well, in that you not only would have heard the commentaries of John Arlo, but also yes. a whole range of programs that, that presumably helped yep. in your intellectual formation. Yeah, very much
1: so. Yes, because um, I think from about 1957, we start to get ball by ball commentary on the overseas tours um, so we could listen to those. I think the first time I started to listen would have been 66 to, six to 1, starting from the first test match. at Frank Royal Captain, which was the tight test. And we got ball-by-ball ball commentary from Australia. And there were, there were three outstanding commentators that the Australians had at the time. Um, A man named Johnny Moyes, who wrote a lot of cricket books as well. Um, Alan McGilvery, another outstanding commentator. And I'll tell you a story about Tony, Tony Kosher. Um, I got to know Tony very well in his last years. and He said he was greatly influenced by Alan McGilvery. And, um, you know, so, so this thing was alive. But we didn't have the images but that made us better followers of the game in a way because you had to imagine these things mm-hmm. and we'd work it out. We knew the field positions and we could understand why, for instance, if Lance Gibbs was bowling and Lance had a way, he'd get a few break, a few, and then you'd get a really fast one which was almost fast medium which would come straight on. And what world would do each Look, The guys in the village would say, the older guys would say, you're here. World Moving Up Demand to Silly Medan or something. Lance gonna push one straight to a leg, go forward now. That sort of thing. Going for LVW because you may want to go back. All of these things we were able to to learn, to understand. Many of us were um, very sophisticated listeners and followers of the game. Yes. Um, the game is not the same without McGill,
0: is it? But um, no. oh, I just wanted to ask you... But that's the name of his, one of his yes. books. Um, I think it was the slogan they used when Packer took the, uh, ah, took the test cricket right. away. Right, yes. I, so that, I think, gives us a sense of of your lifelong love of cricket. Could I just ask you one more question about your pain, <laughs> Billy? We're going to actually see an example of Clem as a performance artist in a, in a, in a second. But um, obviously the other great thing... Interest of yours, I think, that, that has been part of so many of your books is, is the history of indenture and the, and the heritage of the people who came to what was then British Ghana. And you write very interestingly in an essay on V.S. Nepal about the differences between him as a Brahmin and, you know, your own Ahir heritage. Um, you know, presumably that coming from a cattle-rearing family sparked your interest in, in you know, your heritage from an early age? Uh,
1: yes, but what I didn't realize at the time when I was writing a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. um, was that this in spite of the fact that the cattle is so revered I thought the cattle herders and so on would be equally revered No, no, no. Not so at all I discovered that the cattle herders now we, call, we used to call a here, call themselves Yada, and they're kind of upperly mobile, mobile now. But they are still seen as an OBC, which is an other backward cast. <laughs> right? And it's, it's still used. They try to modify it a bit, moderate it a bit by saying, other backward class. <laughs> but um, much despised and associated not only with milk and the selling of milk, but also bhang, the drinking of bhang, booze. So um, all aspects of that tradition
0: survived in the village. Mm. So I, I think that's a, a lovely sort of summary of your upbringing. And um, we thought it might be nice to, to to show you sort of in action, as it were. Um, I think this was a, a speech you gave at um, David Ducaris' house, Moray House, is that right? Yeah. Like back yeah. home, where you give a reading from, we've got it in this lovely pile of books here, from your first book, which you, you wrote with mm. Frank Verbal saying where you, you had a wonderful interview with the uh, leg spinner Ivan Madre. Who yes. I suppose would have been Lance Gibbs's twin, but for selectorial neglect. Yeah,
1: well, I think um, it was Clyde Walcott, in his uh, first book. What's it called, Simon? Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, um, yes. <laughs> I should I ask Peter Mason, but Pete, Peter's in Chile. Yes. Uh, island Cricketers. Island right. Cricketers. I, don't know. I know, I know. I know the repository of all wisdom is here. Um, yes, he said in that book, that these two guys had really come to the fore during his early years when, when Clyde Walcott um, was employed by the Sugar Producers Association by Jock Campbell as a part of their general reform program on the plantations. And Clyde um, was given a job there to coach on the plantations and generally to organize, to rebuild the community centers and the preparation of proper cricket grounds, all weather grounds and so on, you know. And he said that, um, that two of the people that came to the fore at the time were Lance Gibbs, who, as you know, went on to become one of the greatest off-spinners of, of all time. But Ivan only played in two tests, and he didn't get any wickets. It's a long story. And then he got fed up and he migrated to England. And then his first contract, I think, um, I said, well, how you got your first contract? He said, well, I'm not going to go into the dialect yet. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: He said, Conrad Hunt, who was a great Westernese opening batsman. He said, Conrad Hunt was reading a magazine. And he said, Ivan... Look, they get a place here. Get an opening. You can get a job this summer in England. He said, "Where the place there? He said, the place named Penzance. <laughs> <laughs> he had no idea what Penzance. In Cornwall, right? So said, how? He said, how, oh. oh, Clem, by?" oh When we come out to the, the place, the place is cold like grass. <laughs> please call 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 he said this train of god, a train of god the train a god the train a god Now not come to our end so when we come out there the place is so dismal he said where they rush me they send me here for. you know the first place was cornwall penzance in cornwall
0: so you can you can imagine but well, i won't go into more detail but well, at least in the 1950s he was able to take a train to penzance <laughs> So, shall we have a bit more Creole flavors on this? Well, uh,
1: this, this, this was an inter- yeah. not interview. This was based on the. I'm reading here from an interview I did with him on the 2nd and 3rd of November, 1988. It should have been done on the 2nd, but I, that was the first time I was meeting him. But the interview wasn't finished because he and I partook of some beverage. And he said, "Look, the place get late now. You can't see for catch train. You got to stay over." So I stayed over. And the next day, he really opened up. And I'm reading here in jo- this was in Georgetown a few years ago. I was reading from a part of this interview where he was telling me about how he and Rowan Kanai and Basil Butcher and Joe Solomon how these guys all grew up in the same place. So imagine. At the number three batsman was Rohan Kanhai. The number four batsman in Frank Worrell's team here in 1963. The number four batsman was Basil Butcher, and the number six batsman was Joe Solomon. All within half a mile of each other.
0: If we could move on to sort of how that all of that wonderful, rich, um, I, I think you are fond of a quote by E. Macdonald, your friend of the poet Yeats, that that your community was bound together by imaginative possessions. And I think that feeds very much into your work where the on cricket, where where the cricket uh, and the sort of heritage and, and energy of the community yeah. are entwined. And you mentioned James earlier, I, you know, true. obviously very reminiscent of James. But I think your your book Muscular Learning is sort of your beyond a boundary, for most may yeah, sense and perhaps you could speak a little bit about how important um, James's concept of shamanism, named, of course, after mm-hmm. the Constantine's Club in Trinidad, their sort of pride in yes. their competitiveness and also their representativeness of their community, how that applies to, to Guyana. Yeah, well, first of all, I, um, David, I discovered that book
1: around 1965, As I said, in the public free library of New Amsterdam, brand new copy, green cover with the plastic on it and all of that. And um, the first time I read it, or the first uh, couple of times I read it, I couldn't grasp all of it at all. Some of it is quite technical and so on. Um, But I knew from the beginning that here was something that was very important. And I think I got out of it immediately. Something that I could relate to, and that is the, the first division clubs in Trinidad, um like Queen's Park, Oval, um, the Shannon Cricket Club, the um Maple just above, Ma- Maple just above them, and then Stingo at the bottom, this hierarchy color, shade, all these things that went with it. And um, <clears throat> I knew that that was the case with the clubs in Georgetown for a very long time, that the GCC, the BGCC, the DCC, all these clubs, had there was always an ethnic component. Um, and I think I got from the beginning that although James didn't join the Shannon Club, which was the club of the black low middle class that included people like um, Larry Constantine and the St. Hill Brothers, who were very famous cricketers in in Trinidad in the 1920s and 30s. He should have gone, James should have gone to the black low middle class club. But he went light. He went brown. He, He went... He went to Maple and he said he was never quite accepted by the Constantine's and the St. Hill's ever again. Never quite. Um, But what I discovered was that James had tremendous appreciation for the quality of the cricket played by Shannon, the black low middle class club. Um, He also appreciated the resolve which he saw And he made a statement, I think, which stayed with me. And um, David has typed this up. And this is what I mean by Shannonism. The resolve, the dedication to show that whatever people thought of us in the wider society, or whatever discrimination (coughs) we felt we were experiencing in the wider society, here on the cricket field, there was no question we were the boss and we knew that and we played with that resolve and we were very proud of that. As clearly as it was written across the sky, their play, that is the Shannon, the black low middle-class fellas, their play said, here on the cricket field, if nowhere else, all men in the island are equal and we are the best men in the island. They had sting without the venom. No Australian team could teach them, Shannon, anything in relentless concentration. They missed few catches and looked upon one of their number who committed such a crime as a potential fifth (laughs) colonist. And I think one could take that beyond Trinidad, that several of these clubs of um, people of the darker clubs, that they really realized that, look, we were playing against all these guys with whom we could never really socialize. They would not invite us to their homes. We wouldn't go and have a drink with them and so on. But This was one arena, one sphere, where we could demonstrate not only that we were equal, but that we were superior. And I think it's James's argument, because he takes that beyond the Trinidad of the 1920s and the 1930s. James came here in 1932 and never went back again until 1958. But he saw that resolve in many of the players, especially the black players, and, of course, in this great, in the great book, he has a chapter on Larry Constantine, and uh, he has a chapter on George Headley, and um, he has a chapter on Wilson St. Hill, who never really reached his peak. But I think, For James and for myself and many others, we just didn't restrict that notion of Shannonism only to cricket, that we saw this as something that gave us the resolve, the self-belief, the continuity of focus, to try to excel in whatever we did, that we might be third world in many respects, as Tony Kozio once put it. But once we put our minds to something, we end third world to nobody. And I think that, that was the point. And that is what comes out of the great book. Um, unfortunately, uh, very few of us had access to it uh, or read it. And um, although it's now a world famous book, uh, especially in cricketing countries, I think many of our people um, in, in Trinidad and Guyana and Jamaica and so on still have, haven't read it. And that, that that's a book that should be studied in the schools. Yeah. I, I told one of the ministers the other day about this, and he, he made a note of it. And yes, after he
0: walked away, he left a on the t- I, I mean, t- it's such a new, and of course, your book is very nuanced book, which we probably won't have time to go into all the detail of it today, in that you show that the, the the maple element, if you like, you know, was extremely important, you know, in the early development of cricket. But certainly when I was thinking about um, Len Hutton, for example, Shannonism seemed to me also to perfectly encapsulate the attitude of Yorkshire professionals in the 1930s. And of course, another major aspect of your work is I think you apply that concept of Shannonism to Port Morant. And clearly, you mentioned all the great cricketers who came from there, but clearly the central figure is Can I, is the subject, I think, unsurprisingly, of three great poems by John Agard, David Dabedin, and um, your friend Ian MacDonald. And clearly, Can I, in parallel with Jagan, I suppose, was was your constant time. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yes, because... um... You know, I started to follow his career virtually from the from the beginning, and he was a a, a remarkable um, cricketer because he had a flair and a style even from those days um, which nobody could emulate really. He was in a different class. Um, but I think I could speak to a, a wider issue here. And that is, this particular plantation also produced um, Cherry Jagan, who was the Marxist leader of the People's Progressive Party. Um, So apart from the cricketers and Cherry Jagan, the political leader, became the president of Guyana and so on, there were many people in the field of education There were many people who became involved in the lower level of the colonial civil service. There were many entrepreneurs, business people. It was quite a a remarkable uh, plantation. It was an extraordinary plantation because not all plantations were the same. There were many where conditions were abominable, where the old ranges were still there uh, the logis, um, and, um, you know, they lasted until Jock Campbell got a Commonwealth Sugar Agreement. That's another story. Mm-hmm. But the important thing here was that this plantation was not owned by one of the big companies. It was known by Booker. It was known by Sandbach Parker. It was known by Davson. Or those big companies that own sugar plantations in the Guyana coast, the British Guyana coast. It was owned privately by two, what they used to call Anglo Indian brothers, people who were in the Indian Army at senior level of the Indian mm-hmm. Army. But they were absentee owners. But the manager of the plantation was a man named J.C. Gibson. And as Jock Campbell told me, he said he was an excellent administrator because he realized that if he made small reforms on the plantations, if he gave people little, they may ask for more, but there is no question at all that many of the people start to feel that they genuinely belong to the plantation. I'll give you a few examples. What he did was he put aside, he apportioned a portion of the plantation so that the people could grow rice, cultivate rice. Now, he didn't give them enough land to make them independent. He didn't want them to be independent of the plantation. He just wanted them to have a a fairly decent standard living, having the basic, because they were rice eaters primarily, but not to be independent of the plantation. Now, the workers, when it rains they're On that coast of Guyana, it becomes really muddy. The clay, you know, it becomes uh, like, uh, I mean, you you get stuck in the mud. And by the time the workers reached the sugarcane fields, they were exhausted. So what Gibson did was he built a narrow rail um, and he had a locomotive which could take the workers Virtually from their homes on the plantation, straight into the fields. And he brought new methods. He dug a canal that linked the plantation to the Kanji Creek, um, same place where um, uh, Shamar Joseph comes from. That that, that, it's a river, but they call it Creek. So there were all these innovations. So people had a sense of possibilities. And that is why they even called the place, after Jagan, Little Moscow. Many journalists went after the British suspended the constitution in 1953, went to Port Morant, and they baptized it Little Moscow. Because they thought that there was something quite balshy, a bit revolutionary about these people, the way they talked, the way they felt about themselves. Um, and Jock Campbell told me, he said, there was no question at all that when he went there, there in 1932, <clears throat> he said their own plantation was an abominable place. They had these terrible logis. And he said, we had an awful manager who was an autocratic, humorless Scot, a man named James B. He said, but on this plantation, Port Marant, they had Gibson. And Gibson had a way of dealing with his people. And he created, in 1916, a sports club. The sports club had one aim, to produce cricketers. That's all. That was the only aim. But not only that, he gave the people a degree of autonomy. He allowed them to manage and to organize the, um, the cricket. But he also had something shortly after that. And every year on Emancipation Day, the 1st of August, they had the biggest horse racing meeting at Port Perrant. And many of those people who came from Port Perrant were also instrumental in organizing this big event. And I remember we used to wave because the governor used to come to open it. And we stand up by the road and wave to the governor.
0: <laughs>
1: and when he waved back, we waved back bigger, right? <laughs> And I, the go over see me, see me, way are bigger to me, right? So all those things. Um, so when these cricketers emerged now in the late 1950s, now Kanhai, Solomon and Butcher, they played for the first time in, um, on the tour of India and Pakistan in 1958-59. So for us now, the West Indies team was really something that we could plant within our own environment there, which we contribute to this. And it created that, what do we call it? An obsession, but an educated obsession about the game because people knew it. And when you argue with some of these people, you know, um, some of them couldn't even read the newspaper. Some were literate, but they understood the game and could speak about the game in technical terms. And they tell you, listening to the radio, they say, look, this is what um world is trying to do now. This is what he's trying to do here. You see what he's doing? He, he, he bring in the long on and the long off now. You see what he's trying to do? So those kinds of things. And we had absolutely no images at all. We never saw these guys batting. Because... I mean, I left Guyana for the the first time when I was 20, which was 1970, and it didn't have any television. And when I went back for a couple of years in the early 1980s, I think, and they still didn't have television. So these images that we take for granted, these images were not there. So we used to imagine these things. And there's a particular shot which Rohan Kanhai played, where in playing the poker pull backward a square, at the completion of the shot, you will then flatten his back.
0: Yeah.
1: And and there was there was something there which was magical about it. And we made it even more powerful in a sense. Because we hadn't seen it. We couldn't see it being executed. So we can only imagine. And what we used to do is and when we are playing, we'd we'll go down on the thing and
0: <laughs>
1: fall down over. and so It's somewhat um, in an uncoordinated way, clumsily and so on. But that was our way. And there was a case where I think Rohan Kanhai and it might have been Clive Lloyd, they had won a World Cup or something, I believe. And they had this... Parade of, along the road, and um, there was a chap. They used to call him Agile. He was very, very good when he played bumper ball, softball. Excellent. Um, and he had a bottle. Of, he was drinking, and he had a bottle of rum. And when Kanai was passing, he went out to the Rum Shop Bridge, and he executed the shot with a rum bottle. <laughs> So I thought, and so after what happened, I said, Can I look away? <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah. Probably wasn't impressed. I was impressed, although I wasn't in Guyana. But um, yes, because what he was doing there, you'd have discussions on the game at a very high level in the rum shop. The day is play. What happened yesterday? What happened last night? been the night, what happened last night in Australia? Man, why, why Worrell didn't declare? Why you need four hundred and sixty-three runs? Eh? You need to give your bowler more time. And why you am playing a man like Chester Watson? I was just telling Eric about this. Fast Jamaican. He only played one test match. And then you get, no man, you can't get Worrell and uh, you, you can't get Worrell and um opening the bowling, man. Why the man opening the bowling? You get a fast bowler there. So, they were very critical and they followed it with great great passion, you know. So, you you, you couldn't resist it. Um, You were being educated in the process. And that history, as I said, wasn't just a history of cricket. It was necessarily a, a social history because you couldn't separate these people, the context of their play, And what they represented, to go back to Shannonism, that they came from nowhere at all. And we saw these people as not just representing us, but setting a kind of benchmark, which in some ways we would seek consciously or unconsciously to emulate in
0: our own lives. Yeah, beautiful. Yes. Now, Conscious of time, so um I think we one of your great books uh is Sweetening Bits of Sugar, which we've touched upon. I think we don't really have time to discuss that in detail today, but you're speaking about Chetty Jan tomorrow, I think, at the Draper Hall and Elephant Class. Well, I've written a book. Yeah. yeah. We'll just we'll just give that um uh, <laughs> a
1: little
0: Yeah, there we are. <laughs> As usual with clinic books, I can't lift it up. Okay. Okay. It's <laughs> That whole, I would commend this book and the, the book about Jock Pander. I mean, there's the old joke, isn't there, that uh, if you were from Ghana and you got an OBE, it's took for old book as employee. He he gave the lie to that. So that whole subject, I think, is one where I'd really recommend your books. But I just wanted to end before we stop for coffee and then try and get as many questions in from the floor as we can. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. Just two last questions, Glenn. The first is, obviously, you, you came to England and, and taught for 20 years, introduced many innovative courses in that time. How would you say your your sort of career as a teacher interacted with your career as a a writer?
1: Oh, very important. Extremely important. Because in those days before I wrote something, let me say something like that book, um, Muscular Learning, Uh, a lot of those things I would have... I introduced a course... In I think it was around 2000 on the history of West Indies cricket which was the first as far as I know the first course in this country on the history of West Indies cricket and um, many of the issues and these are early issues because this book I, I think this book ends at 1900 or something so um, it, I think it ends at 1900. Yes. I mean, I would have covered many of those subjects, however, minimally or embryonically, um, in some of my lectures. And that was very important because what I would do is I would test these ideas out in, in some way. I would test the ideas out um, in the class and ask people to, to comment on it, or what you think about this or that. So yes, the the, the teaching and the
0: writing were inseparable. And of course, some of your students, uh, like Peter Mason, have gone on to write great books about <coughs> cricket and other matters them, themselves.
1: Well, I've got um, one of my great students here, Juanita Cox, who is responsible for the event she and... Um, her partner Rod Westmus, her husband, um, they are responsible for the event tomorrow. The mm. launch of this book tomorrow. and Juanita was one of my outstanding students, right? And that's three the, three o'clock tomorrow at Draper Hall, okay, For those who are interested, yes, it starts at uh, three thirty, but right. the place is open from three, and and, and it's Vapor Hall.
0: Mm. Uh, in Elephant and Castle. In yeah. Elephant and Castle. Five minutes more than two. Right. Okay. So. There we, are. we hope that some people would be able to, to make it. Good. So that's why we haven't talked quite so much about the politics as the cricket, because you'll we'll, we'll, we'll be in full force doing that tomorrow. Just one last question then, before we break quickly. Um, I think you once described, you know, the, the, the years of dominance of Lloyd's and R- Richards as, as one of the sociological miracles of the 20th century. But obviously, in this century, I mean, once Floyd well, doesn't make a summer, it was a great victory in Brisbane. Uh, rather nice it was in Brisbane as well, given your book about Joe Solomon. Yes, the Thai um, test was there. Yeah. But, but I remember when you launched that book, we had a wonderful event at the Guyanese Embassy. I think I can see some ladies and gentlemen who were at that event. And Clive Lloyd spoke about some of the reasons West Indies cricket has frankly been in decline. I mean, not even qualifying for the World Cup after winning it the, the first two times. Do you have a... I know it's probably difficult to do in five minutes, but, you know, a view of, of what's gone wrong and, and what, what you know, how how it might be put right? You've alluded to some ways in which it is being put right, perhaps.
1: <clears throat> well, um, look, I didn't even know this guy, Shamar Joseph, before he got those five wickets. And... Um, Most people in in the region would never have heard of him. So, and I don't know enough of what he has done to reach there. I'm sure more of that will come out. But no, we've had um, an ongoing problem. Um, First of all, sometimes I need to remind people that this is the only international cricket team that represents 10 sovereign states. And there were always contentious issues in the context of Mm CARICOM. We've always had uh, arguments about whether this guy um, deserves to be there or not. And for a long time in our cricket, we ignored people, as my um, former colleague, Rita Christian, who is here, used to remind me. She is from Antigua, that has produced um, Sir Vivian and Sir Andy Roberts. And Sir Richie Richardson and um, Um, I remember Rita telling me many times that her father and her friends for a long time didn't support West Indies Mm -hmm. because they knew people who they thought were good enough and should have been called up and should have been given a chance. And they were simply ignored
0: because they come from these little islands, man. We worry them, don't worry them. Don't. Yes. I mean, as an example, on the, on the tour in the 1953, I think the two fastest bowlers in in the Caribbean were yes. Anderson and Mason. Yes. And neither of them got a look in. in no, terms no,
1: no, no. Pre-
0: precisely. Tim so Hector's written about this. Yes, bowl, course, and he wrote very passionately about it.
1: But um, that is an indication of the sort of problems that we've we've had. But what has made it worse, I think... And um, I, I think the other day Simon was in Barbados and he was being taken around to his, the old club of a man named Charlie Griffith. Many of you would remember Charlie,
0: <laughs>
1: right? And Charlie was taking him around and he was making a comment or something to the effect that, look, this is the quality of, of the place now. This is the quality of the cricket. And I would say the same thing. Let's take um, Guyana specifically because I know more about Guyana. And all those great clubs, which I've written about in those two volumes of history of cricket in Guyana, hand in hand history of cricket in Guyana, all those two volumes, all those great clubs virtually disintegrated. If you go to the old border ground now, you feel like that's a, a rum shop, it broke up, you know. The place, all the thing. I stood up with Lance Gibson mm. and the pavilion there.
0: He said, boy, look at this thing. Look at mm. look what this place become." Oh, so I think then, I can see Colin at the back there. He took a photo. Oh yes, for a cricket society oh, talk. Yeah, yeah, Colin. Well, the last summer. Yes. I was astonished at how the place has been left for wreck and
1: wood. Yes. And I just walked in this place. I, you know, first time in Guyana for nine years. And when I go to the night, I do watch this again in three weeks. And I wandered
0: around Bordeaux, and people looked to me as if, why, why, why is this kind of curious? Because I
1: was
0: going into the dressing room, looking at the... You come from outside, man. One day around class. <laughs> <and> <laughs> No, nobody really <nobody laughs> cared. Nobody had a sense of his and understanding. No. <laughs> no. And that's a
1: problem
0: that we have, in the And also in
1: other of the group well, the same thing with Clive Lloyd's club, the DCC, the club where Clive and Lance, his cousin, they were cousins, two sisters, uh, sons. Um, when, when you go to these places today, you say, oh my God, given the history of these places, the players they've produced in the past, same thing in Barbies. When you go to these grounds, the, the, there was a place called the Mental Hospital Ground mm-hmm. where I kind of grew up and saw many of the outstanding players who went on to play for British Cayenne in the West Indies, including my old friend Freddo, oh, Ray Fredericks, and other guys, you know. And when you go to the place now, the Kanji Creek, same Kanji Creek up where... Um, the
0: man from Barakara is from.
1: The man from Barakara is from. <laughs> um, that Kanji Creek has flowed over into the cricket ground now. And it has transformed the vegetation into a very fertile swamp.
0: <laughs>
1: so I think this is the sort of thing. And Steve Kumash, who was the secretary of the West Indies Cricket Board for many years, the late, late Steve Kamash, the late Steve Kumash from, mm-hmm. from Guyana, he said, if your if you're first division cricket, if your club cricket disintegrates, he said you're in serious trouble. Because that is where, over the years, before you started playing, whether you got a contract in the leagues or later on for one of the companies, before you even played for the West Indies, he said that is where you learned the basics. And not only that, but there was a club culture where the older fellas can say, no Ma Wap. Yeah. You got a big gate between the bat and the pad. What's going on there? They can drive a bus through the thing, man. And this was the kind of thing—the the, the knowledge, in a way, a kind of folk knowledge that was there, which was integral to the game. All of these things went into making the great players we produced. And um, if you go throughout the region now, and you go and you see. It, the Quality of first division first division cricket, you're shocked. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get the other oasis. This is an extraordinary character who comes along. We've seen it with, um, especially in the T20 version of the game. I mean, this guy is extraordinary because he's, he's done it at this level against what is now the best team in the world, but um, no, they. Not just the infrastructure, but, but the attitude. You know, the same thing in the schools, where it starts there, and the deterioration in the quality of the education, the deterioration in infrastructure, all, all these things that go with it. So it's a cultural thing, and it's a cultural degeneration in a way. And I think you've got to look at these fundamentals. Um, I hope that... We're beginning to see a, a renaissance, but, you know, these are very early days. We, we can't we can't make these conclusions yet at all. And uh, I don't care what people say. And um, I listened to the young man's comments that his first priority would be um, West Indies cricket. But I tell you something, there's big money coming. Yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't blame him. If he decides, look, I've got a limited time, I may end up like Archer, not being able to bowl very long.
0: Okay.
1: People forget about you. I may as well try and help myself and my family. Yeah. Uh, because the West Indies board has not shown respect to its people over the years. And um, I wouldn't blame him if he goes for the big money because he is likely to have a contract with RCB, which is Kohli's team. Kohli make sure you're going to face him. Um, uh, We're going to get him a
0: big pay pay packet. Yes, more power to him. Well, well, look, I'm sure we'll discuss these things further um, after the break. Um, But can um, I say that I think we all owe you an enormous debt for... You, you know, we're talking about folk, folk knowledge, culture, history, and you are one of the people who has preserved it more than anyone. Uh, thank you very much. So-